Welcome to this Valentine's Day episode of Breakout Culture. I am your love interest for this podcast, <laughs> Ed Basie, the lover boy culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the mere associate editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. Now, a great tragedy has befallen us in West London, where Charlotte, very sadly, couldn't open her door yesterday because there were so many Valentine cards <laughs> that had come through the letterbox that she couldn't reach them. Actually, they were all for her wonderful daughter, who we won't embarrass. We'll just make her cringe a bit. Uh, Charlotte's 16-year-old daughter was overwhelmed. She's very <laughs> old school. She didn't get any TikToks or text messages or WhatsApps. They were all traditional cards, all of them opened and vetted by Charlotte. <laughs> But we're going to make you feel even more romantic by listening to this podcast because we've got a couple on. We've got a lovely couple. The male half is Roger Deakins, and he's a British cinematographer. He did a lot of films like Shawshank Redemption and James Bond, and his wife, James. And they talked to us all the way from the capital of love, Hollywood. <laughs> Just let me add that everything Ed said about my daughter is a complete fantasy. But if you're like me and you don't have anyone to be romantic with today, don't worry because we've got plenty to distract you with, including a fascinating conversation about design in an age of crisis and the upcoming design biennale at Somerset House. Design in the age of crisis. What could be more romantic than that? But first, <laughs> because it's Valentine's Day, we're going to start by talking about sex, which we haven't talked about sex before on this podcast, amazingly except obliquely in reference to the charms of the Duke of Hastings. I'm glad to say that our excuse for doing this is actually very highbrow and cultural, because it's a topic being discussed at the world's largest philosophy and music festival, How the Light Gets In, which is staging a one-day winter revel on the 20th of February. It's presented by the Institute of Art and Ideas, and there are going to be over 40 events. Yes, and the idea behind Winter Revel is to get people onto their unique virtual reality site, which currently is the only online place you can actually chat to other festival visitors and to the panellists. It's designed to get our brains all geared up to do some big thinking, and it leads with cutting-edge debate. One of the debates on Saturday the 20th is about sexuality and how we view it. It's called The Limits of Sexuality, and it questions whether sex has become entirely irrelevant or if our sexual desires are still the keys to our identity. One of the panellists is Olivia Fain, the author of a widely acclaimed book, Why Sex Doesn't Matter. She's also an award-winning novelist and has got not one, but three MAs. Her work and intellectual ideas have been highly praised and she's going to be discussing sex on that panel on Saturday with Yasmin Alibi-Brown, Mickey Kendall and Nikki Adams. But first, she's going to talk about sex with us. Good morning, Olivia. Good morning. Good morning, Olivia. So I actually, I know Yasmin Alibi-Brown quite well. We used to appear on a television show together called The Right Stuff and I find the idea of discussing sex with Yasmin quite intimidating, but you obviously don't. So I just want to be clear, you're on the side that says no sex. Well, you say no sex. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm on the side of saying whatever happened to sex? Whatever happened to this sweet thing? And it was always so subtle and one arm round waist sent shivers down our spines and now it's become kind of dark beyond all measure and serious beyond all measure and as I would say lost all its joy. 
When you say dark and serious, in like like what? Give us some examples. Well, I was thinking about this on my on my walk in the blizzard this morning. It, it's dark very very fast. We have a sort of sweetness right at the beginning, and then suddenly, hey, that's not good enough. We don't reach those pleasures that we uh, want. Well, shall we try something different? Shall we try anal sex? Shall we try pretending we're prostitutes? Shall we try this? Shall we try that? And I think there's very very quickly we go on a sort of a downward spiral to something that actually we want to try just simply because we haven't. I think sex is, by its very nature, dangerous, transgressive, bad. And yet we say, oh, this is so important. This is a great, important part of us. You know, this badness is very, you know, how could we have gone like that? How did we become like that? We're very frank nowadays. You know, we say, Oh, all women say, oh, I have a rape fantasy. Oh, I have this or that. In fact, this is an interesting fact that uh, communicating with your partner is not erotic in the everyday kitchen. What is erotic? What made everybody rush back uh, to the bedrooms uh, was that book, Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, with a bit of spanking and violence. And that's what's erotic. I thought it's the least sexy book I've ever read. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I haven't got round to, to reading it yet. I'm saving it up for my retirement. But don't um, bother. <laughs> when you say when you say sex doesn't matter, I mean, presumably on a serious point, Pornhub is a villain in all this. Okay, porn is about the marketplace. What makes money? Porn is actually the central point, actually, of what sex is about. I.e., treating other people as objects objects because the second that you become a real person who's sort of grieving for your mother or worried about this or worried about that it's not sexy why porn is sexy is because you're just you're just a body so i'm struggling with your thesis olivia can i just establish are you saying we need to have better sex and get back to old school sex or are you saying we should give up sex i saying we've let the cat out of the bag and goodness get back to a sort of state of innocence because we sort of have this hyperinflation, unless something's really disgusting and goes on and on and is whatever, whatever. We don't even feel it or see it anymore. We've spoilt it. Now, what I'm really interested in, Olivia, is you've got five sons. How on earth do you talk to them about sex? Well, that's an interesting question because I decided very early on that I would never even mention sex. <laughs> and, uh, and the reason why not was my mother never stopped talking about sex and how, how wonderful sex was and uh, how exciting. And actually, interestingly, for the sort of Me Too debate, she actually says that the th great thing about sex is that, that men have bigger sexual appetites than women, which means, she says, that women have all the power. They want us. They will, you know do anything for us in order to win, <laughs> win our bodies we have the power and she said when somebody sort of puts a sort of unwelcome sort of hand on your knee or something just pity them pity them they can't help it you know and so it's quite interesting all the me too saying that that would be a form of abuse or something because for me i always felt when there was an unwelcome hand on my knee oh poor poor thing <laughs> And what do you think your panellists are going to say? The sort of thesis that I've kind of uh, been looking at is, is, is basically we've now divided sex. There are lots of contradictions in the way that we see sex, which don't sit happily uh, with one another. Because so on the one hand, we're told, oh, it's so central. This is a place you know, where you must explore your deepest fantasies and this is an important part of you. And then on the next hand, we are told, 
oh my goodness, uh, it should be forbidden. And you know, even the touching of a nursery school teacher for a child, oh my goodness, that might be sexual. We mustn't do that. So and I think it is absolutely to do with what all of these contradictory messages that we give children as they grow up. This is so important. This is so important. If you do not behave like a porn star, you're repressed and frigid. You know, if someone you don't fancy makes a pass at you, oh goodness me, you must report them to the authorities. In fact, a boy or a young boy, a 25-year-old young man, uh, came up to me a couple of years ago and said, oh, no, honestly, honestly, you have to tell me the truth. Am I handsome enough? to ask a girl out on a date. Handsome enough. I said, of course you're handsome enough. And uh, anyway, I said, what the hell is going on here? And then I talked to this very cool, woke, beautiful 22-year-old PhD student at Cambridge. And I said how upset I was to hear that this was the question. She said, oh, it's disgusting. It's abusive when a, a, a man asks you for a date. It's a horrible thing. If you want, this is my advice for your friend, she said. Uh, use Tinder like the rest of us, scroll down, which who do you fancy, click on it, get your sex and come home and you haven't been abused. It's a kind of good, decent contract. Well, that's what's happened to sex. What's your solution? Well, actually, I did, I did wonder what my solution was. And I think my solution would be to say very, very quickly there's a dark side and that we do treat each other as objects. And because we're all so sexualized, um, you know, we, we, we teach everybody that if, you know, if, if, if you're beautiful, then you're desirable. And if you're desirable, then you're lovable. And we've done this kind of weird equation of lust with love. And it's so sad and so destructive. I think it's going to be live streamed, this lively discussion. Well, it is. Tell us a bit just quickly before you go about the festival itself. Oh, well, the festival itself is a completely terrific festival. In fact, I've become addicted. I first learned of it when I was uh, talking on it uh, last autumn. And I've become addicted ever since. So what I love about um, IAI is the anger, the actual fact that we will be fighting with one another and you know my 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 uh, you know my hands now. That's what I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight to say it's all gone, gone mad, and we're destroying uh, childhood. We're destroying ourselves. Uh, people are unhappier than ever before, and we must learn to love again properly and deeply. Oh well, on that note, wow. Well, if that's not a great Valentine's Day message, I don't know what is. Let's all learn to love deeply. And meanwhile, all the details of how to log into the How the Light Gets In Winter Revel next Saturday will be on our website or go straight to theirs at howthelightgetsin.org. Our next guest, Victoria Brokes, is not nearly as well known as she should be. Though regular readers of Country and Townhouse might have read the interview I did with her a while ago about her spectacular work as a senior curator for the Victorian Albert Museum. Vicky is the brilliant woman behind all those blockbuster exhibitions from David Bowie is, and the one about counterculture in the 60s, You Say You Want a Revolution, and Pink Floyd, Their Mortal Remains in 2017. These shows harnessed technology and a way of listening to music as you went round and had crowds, including me, flocking to the v Vic is a major talent in the art world and as such was appointed director of the London Design Biennale in November 2019. After the usual COVID-induced delays that so many have suffered, the Biennale is now optimistically due to open at Somerset House on the 1st of June and Vicky is here with us to tell us all about it. Good morning, Vicky. Good morning. Good to be here. Good morning, Vicky. We want to find out about the Biennale itself, but just to kind of 
segue our way in, you've already launched a fascinating and very democratic initiative with Chatham House called Design in an Age of Crisis. And what this does is it asks people to submit design solutions to current problems around health, work, society, and the environment, which I think is, you know, obviously essential. I don't think people understand how important the role of design is in some of these policy areas. So anyone can send in a design. You've had 500 submissions, I gather, from all over the world. You launched the first event around health in January, and the next one around work is happening on the 23rd of February. So Charlotte has obviously tweaked the kind of thing that really gets me going. So tell us all about design <laughs> in an age of crisis. Well, um, Ed, you've, you've kind of given a very, very good introduction covering uh, pretty much I everything. Know, I'm brilliant like that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, so this time, this time last year, if we can cast our minds back, um, I think we, we thought we were on the route to having um, the, the biggest and best Biennale so far at Somerset House in September 2020. And then, of course, lockdown came. And uh, like you setting up your podcast. We were we were at home, but we were looking around and seeing that, of course, so much was going on in the design world and there were snorkeling masks being turned into ventilators and people printing 3D masks and, and, and that kind of thing. And I suppose it's true to say that creativity never locks down. In fact, challenges actually uh, bring it out. So in the, the gap that was uh, created by postponing the London Design Biennale to 2021, um, we created an initiative with uh, Chatham House to create links between the international design and the policy making communities to look at the critical issues facing society that had either been exacerbated by the pandemic or had had a light particularly shined on them. We wanted to to further the UK's role as an international hub for innovation and ideas exchange, but also to shine a light on the, on, on the fact that design is much more than, you know, what we know it to be, making things, product, houses, the things you're looking at right now. Uh, it's also about that um, taking on um, problems and addressing challenges and finding and seeking solutions, and that we all have a role to play in that. So we put out the open call um, last last June and were absolutely astonished by what came back. I am obsessed by this issue. I remember once when I got run over and uh, <laughs> Sorry the, ambulance, to laugh. <laughs> the ambulance came along and I got put on a stretcher and put in the ambulance and driven to the hospital. And then I got taken off the stretcher and, you know, it took sort of six people, obviously, to kind of get me off and put me on a bed. And all I could keep thinking was, this is really bad design. Why on earth would you move <laughs> someone who's just been run over from one flatbed to another flatbed? Surely you should design a bed that can go in an ambulance and a hospital. Absolutely. And, and it sounds like you should enter your idea in design <laughs> in an age of crisis. Um, but ex exactly. I remember years ago hearing a story about an engineer who was going in for open heart surgery. And he asked the doctors to tell him exactly what they were going to do to him. And he had a look at it and he said, you know, why do you do it like that? And he redesigned the operation. <laughs> and <laughs> the redesign that the engineer came up with is now the way they do those heart operations. And I think that, that's no. the fascinating thing about when you bring people in, in, in different areas together, ask the right questions, you can get some really interesting, astonishing and helpful results. Well, I know, and that's partly what intrigued me most about this, because you, you know, because anyone can enter, you said one of your favourite work solutions, for example, was something very, very simple, like a really beautifully designed desk in a cupboard. So tell us a bit more about some of the other ideas that came in from 
you know, Ed and me, for you yeah. know, ordinary people <laughs> out there. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that, that is a thing. And I, I, I would say that actually um, this initiative has evolved as, as we've gone along. Because I think when uh, when we put it out to, to the public and designers and policymakers and the world, I, I envisage that we would um, go through and choose some star suggestions and um, those would be the ones we'd feature. But as they came in in their hundreds, it, that just felt the wrong way to go. It felt that what we had here was a, a sort of bubbling up of ideas from the very local people, people who had, you know, perhaps were at home for the first time ever. They were looking at things differently. So you get that breadth and you get things that are very, very specific, but you also get the great visionary projects. Um, you know, we have a number of sort of big architects practices and so on. Brilliant. And I know also, Vicky, that you're very keen on giving young people a voice and that under 18s can submit up to the 1st of April. Tell us a bit more about that and what you're looking for from them and how young can the children go down to to submit ideas? Oh, absolutely. And and, and I'm so <laughs> so pleased you asked that, Charlotte. Um, yeah, the Young Persons Brief is open until the 1st of April. It's open to anybody under 18. And um, again, the, the, the brief is on the website, but, but really the brief is, you know, how, how can you make your world better? Or how would you, how would you like, what would you like to see changed in your world? And uh, young people can enter in, in, any of the, in any of the areas. And of course, as we all know, young people are fantastically creative, uh, but also they have, um, <laughs> they have a lot of stake at stake. You know, this is their world that we're, we're creating. And uh, so we're really excited. And we will have um, in June at the Biennale at Somerset House, uh, we will have an exhibition on the whole initiative, but with, a, with an area particularly dedicated to the young, young people's entries. So very much looking forward to seeing what comes in from them. Let's all pretend that the world has returned to normal. It's June. 2021 what happens at Somerset House? Well uh, the Biennale takes over the entire site of Somerset House which as you know runs from the Strand right down to the Thames and uh, we're working at the moment uh, you know we're working to look at all possible ways that restrictions might be in place so one-way systems and and so on but funnily enough they found that that works really well at Somerset House because it is so huge that people oh, yes of course yeah, yeah yeah when people go free range you walk around the big yeah, yeah yeah you talk to people and they say oh i didn't see that i miss that bit so so uh, we're actually thinking the one-way system might might address that quite well but we're also really excited because we have two amazing outdoor installations the um the uk pavilion it's going to be absolutely fantastic it's going to be in the courtyard and take over the whole of the courtyard and then on the river terrace we have the african diaspora pavilion which is also absolutely amazing and those will be two meeting points as well as their own installation. They'll also be the places where a lot of the programming and events and so on happen. But then in in the um, in the building of Somerset House, um, there will be pavilions from countries, cities and territories from around the world, uh, bringing their responses to the brief set by our artistic director, Ez Devlin, the uh, renowned set stage designer and, and artist. And I think the, the aspect of a performance design and uh, speaking to the audience is something that both she and I feel um, very, very strongly about. This is a design biennale not for specialists although it is for specialists but it's really for everybody because I think if you don't if you can't communicate your ideas to everyone you're you're not really 
succeeding. So um, it should be fun, uh, fun for all the family and uh, will be so exciting if we're coming out of this. And I can already sort of see the, you know, early summer feeling and long evenings and, and all of that. It'll be wonderful. Now, oh, Vicky, brilliant. we can't uh, let you go. Our listeners would kill us if you didn't tell us a funny story about the David Bowie exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. He got involved, presumably. Uh, well, he kind of, um, he, he said he wouldn't be involved, and he wasn't in the sense that he didn't come to meetings, and he, you know, his team are tiny, so we worked with this this tiny team, but one felt he was a bit like the Wizard of Oz and possibly behind the curtain somewhere uh, about to leap out. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, but he came to the exhibition in London, and I think that was, um, that was super exciting um, because... He did respond to it very well. I think he arrived thinking, well, this is all my stuff. So, you know, I'm not that interested. It was really for the rest of the family. But as he went round, I think he began to see what, um, you know, how, how the public had uh, responded and why um, so excitedly. Well, thank you so much, Vicky. And I really, really, really hope that 1st of June we'll all be at Somerset House. Oh, yes, please. Yeah, can't wait. Come and see it and have a look at Design in an Age of Crisis in, in the meantime to whet your appetite. Our next guests all the way from Los Angeles are the British cinematographer Sir Roger Deakins, knighted in this year's New Year's Honours List, and his wife and longtime collaborator, digital workflow consultant James Ellis Deakins. We're going to be talking to Roger about his movies and his gong, but we're also going to be hearing from both of them about the podcast they do together. So good morning, because you're in California, <laughs> Team Deakins, Roger and James. Yes, good morning. Thank good morning. you. <laughs> well, it's lovely to be talking to you both. And just to put all our listeners in the picture, Roger is a seriously famous cinematographer, known particularly for working with the Coen brothers and Sam Mendes. In 1994, he won his first major award from the American Society of Cinematographers for Shawshank Redemption. And his list of credits is Endless Fargo, Barton Fink, No Country for Old Men, Skyfall, and A Beautiful Mind, to name just a few. Now, what's really exciting for me is that I can proudly boast that I've actually worked with Roger way back in the 1980s when I was producing pop videos with the director, John Mills, and Roger was occasionally our director of photography. Roger, it's a long way since Stiff Records and the Chris Rea yeah. video in Berlin. <laughs> so, it's a long so, way from, uh, <laughs> from madness, yeah, and Chris Rea, yeah. <laughs> so, so tell our listeners how you made the break from a tiny pop video production company into Hollywood's major league. It was just a gradual sort of segue, really. You know, I, st I started really in documentary, so I did a lot of pop videos as we called them back then and a lot of rock concerts and stuff but I started in documentaries and then some of the people I met Mike Radford in particular uh, went on to um, make feature films and basically you did 1984 that you shot didn't well you? I did a film called Another Time Another Place with Mike it was his first feature which was financed by Channel 4 which was a Channel 4 then, when it just started, it was a great bonus for independent filmmakers, really. And um, on the basis of Another Time, Another Place, Mike got uh, yeah, a film version of 1984 together. So I did that with him. And then it just steamrolled after that, really. I mean, I don't want to dwell on this stiff records period, but I do remember my brother... <laughs> Sounds like you brother, do, really, yeah. My brother had a T-shirt uh, when he was a teenager. I was a little boy looking up to him saying if it ain't stiff it ain't worth a fuck so i still have mine 
always had a soft spot for stiff records. Yeah. <laughs> but we're much more interested in concentrating on uh, the film career and later your podcast with James as well. But Charlotte, by the way, has written this script and I'm afraid that it's, uh, it's very rude because she's asked me to dwell on failure because she wants me to point out <laughs> that you were nominated 13 times for an Oscar before winning one in 2017 for Blade Runner. Well, is that a failure? And, also, really? and she's adding to it that you were turned down by the National Film School here in the UK <laughs> because your work was not deemed photographic enough. So really, uh, I, I no, think what no, she's, again, trying, she's trying that's to make a the point. An, that's a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> yeah. When the National Film School opened up, they wanted to take people that had a little bit more experience than I had. I had just come out of art college and I applied and they turned me down. So then I went, I said, well, I want to know why they've turned me down. So I actually got an interview with Colin Young, who was then, who had started the film school and was running it. A wonderful, wonderful guy, a wonderful teacher. And I remember sitting in this office in the, uh, it was the, the South Bank Centre he was there and in an office there. And he was saying, well, really, we want to, we want people with more experience than you got. But, and then we started talking about the photographs that I'd taken. That is what I submitted as my you know, portfolio. And he said, well, the thing is, they're not filmic. And he pointed to a picture on the wall behind <laughs> him, which was a horse and cart, like, you know, Fuller's Brewery or something, pulling a cart of beer or something. And it was out of focus because it was a time exposure. And I said, that's not filmic, that's out of focus. <laughs> but uh, thankfully, they let, th thankfully, they let me, they let me uh, apply again the next year and I got in. You'll probably say, how can I choose my favourite child? But is there a particular film that you've worked on that you would say was a highlight? It depends which day you're asking, really. Yeah. I mean, you what know, about you're always in a different mood, are you? I, I mean, I think I would consistently say... 1984, really, because of the experience, because of the challenge, because of the people involved, because of working with John Hurton, uh, Susanna Hamilton and Richard oh, Burton. Yes. And Richard Burton was, uh, you know, my idol as an actor. I thought he was beyond comparison, really. I thought he was uh, such a wonderful film actor. He was a lovely guy. I mean, really lovely guy. We're going to turn to podcast in just a second, but because I've had two gin and tonics, I'm just going to indulge myself <laughs> and ask two questions about the knighthood. First of all, has it does it mean that you can finally get the table you want at your favourite restaurant in Santa Monica? <laughs> And we secondly, can't go out. Funny enough, James, that was my next question. Given it's um, COVID, are you going to be virtually knighted? Virtually um, knighted? Actually, I'm so talking what? with um, different officials and they're deciding how they're going to handle it. I, I was awarded a CBE a few years ago and we went to the investiture at Buckingham Palace. And, you know, I'm you know, not big on awards and all those things. But it was a really moving experience, actually. So I hope they do it live because the people we met, I was standing in line to go and talk to, it was Princess Anne. And, and I was standing in line and there was this kind of soldier there. That I guess he was a lieutenant or something. And he just, under his breath, he said, I thought Shawshank was wonderful. Brilliantly <laughs> photographed. You deserve it. And I thought, that was so cool. I'm standing there in the middle of this award ceremony. I love that. I love it, yeah. They're those things you really remember, you know. 
I'll tell you one other anecdote because I'm going on now. Yeah, there we after, these anecdotes. after that, <laughs> I, went, I went back to Devon. We go back to Devon when we can. We got a little flat there. And I go fishing, right? And to get my bait, I go up to the local river and I stand with um, a lot of fishing fishermen to get a sand eel. So you get live sand eels as bait, you see. And you wait for the time the guys that catching them come in. And anyway, so I'm standing in this queue and this guy said, uh, you should have won. I said, what do you mean? The, the Oscar. He said, oh. Oh, I said, oh, thanks very much. I said, how sufficient? He said, not very good. And then we started talking about fishing. And that was the only thing. He just said, I wish you should have won. Oh. And this was a guy, just a you know, fisherman standing there and off the beach of Teamwork. Yeah. And those, those are the things you remember. You know what I mean? Well, well you have won two Oscars now. And um, on that note, let's turn to your podcast that, that you both do together as Team Deacon. Um, you've done well over 80 so far. And you've had some amazingly high profile guests on. But what's more interesting about it, that it's also shining a light on all those lesser known but equally essential participants in the film process. You know, those absolutely vital cogs that make the wheel go round, since we all know that movies are a thousand percent about teamwork. So tell us what prompted you to start it all and and what, what the response has been. Well, we have a website and we have a lot of young people that are starting out and we have a forum and we give a lot of information out. And we also go off and do Q and A's. And after the Q and A's, we're usually surrounded by people who are asking the same questions. So it occurred to me that if we did a podcast, we could answer those questions once <laughs> instead of doing it over and over again. Then we asked a couple of people to do it. What kept coming up is that filmmaking is a collaborative process, and which means everybody's involved. So then it became interesting to us to start having all the people that you don't hear from. And it's been really interesting because when we talked to the casting director, I realized that it knew so little about casting directors. And so we get to ask all the questions we wanted to ask to ask and it's a great way to pe see people during this time period so we've got all these wonderful people that we've not actually met except for over zoom you know now we like the idea of demystifying the process you know so many young people think film is over there and it's so hard i know i did as a kid i mean from from devon it was like the film industry was a million light years away so just to sort of just chat just have conversations with people about how they started and their approach and what their passions are. And, you know, I think it's, I find it really fascinating. I'm sure other people do, I hope. The interesting thing is we talk to people that are in the same category, so they're doing the same job, but they approach it completely differently. And we think that's really good for people to realize, oh, I should make it my own. I should do it the way what matters to me exactly it's like i don't think there are any rules you know you don't have to obey rules to make a film i mean it's nice to know the language if there is such a thing but and it's nice to know different how people different people approach you know but uh, you've got to find your own way and i think talking to such a variety of people that really comes out i mean i think listening to you you've, you've sort of created a, a film a film school via podcast haven't you in many ways but it's interesting because people that don't need film school, like producers and directors that we know, are listening because they're getting to hear other people's sides. 
too. So it's not just a film school for someone starting out. It's people that are really good at what they do. They love to hear the other side yeah. of the story. Yeah, I but think... also, also we got an email from a truck driver who said, I've got nothing to do with <laughs> filmmaking, but I love films. And it's great because I can listen to your podcast on a long drive. <laughs> and it's so fascinating. Just hearing how people experience and how they work, you know. So that's really good, isn't it? You're you're based in Hollywood. You live in Hollywood. You're you're at the coalface. You know, how are things changing? I mean, to put it crudely, you know, is the next Roger Deakins film actually going to be an eight episode series for Netflix? Is that all now completely kind of broken down and blending? And you know, I really don't know. And I, I must say, I'm quite concerned. And I think about this a lot as to what the next film we work on will actually be. And I, I, not so much whether it's Netflix or it's whether, for, whether it's for the cinema, is, is what will that film be? I'm at lost to words because I'm not sure where it's going, you know. I don't know what the film industry will look like at the end of this pandemic. Is that because people are so afraid to try and write anything now because they just don't know where we are or where this pandemic is taking us? Until very recently, where politics was taking America, actually. I think it's more that they don't know whether the studios are going to take a risk on a lower budget movie. Are they going to want to go with something that they know sells, like the Marvel Universe or whatever? Is there going to be a place for a thoughtful movie? Okay, final annoying question, because this is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh -oh. Roger and James, you fessed up favourite film that Roger did the cinematography on. Favourite film star? Richard Burton, get out of that. <laughs> you know, they talk about actors sometimes being difficult and that. I mean, you know, like Richard Burton had a, had a bit of a, you know, a track record apparently, but he was wonderful. You know, you take people as you find them and, and I, we've just worked with just lovely people, you know, we've been very, very lucky. Did you meet on a movie? Yeah, we did. We, we met in Dakota on a movie. James was script supervisor. And what I was shooting. It was called Thunderheart, and Mike Apted, who sadly died oh, yes. just recently, was yeah. the director. Yeah. Wow. And um, again, that was again, it was a really a nice experience. Even better because we met on it. <laughs> oh, brilliant! What a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yes, thank you. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that too. And I'm delighted to say Roger's exactly as lovely and unassuming as I remember him in the good old days of Stiff Records pop videos a very long time ago now. Anyway, that's all we've got time for this week. But please keep listening and leaving comments. It makes such a difference. And on the Country and Townhouse website, you'll also be able to find our wonderful sister podcast, House Guest, in which Carolyn Nett talks to great names in interior design. And don't forget to listen to the Great British Brands podcast too, because this week Michael Heyman is talking to none other than Archie Hewlett, the brilliant young entrepreneur who started Duke and Dexter Shoes, which I love. You know where to find them, all on our website at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And if you add forward slash newsletter to that address, you'll be able to subscribe to our newsletters that are really good reading. But for now, I'm off to be deeply romantic. Goodbye. Goodbye.